the murder mystery podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? On the murder mystery podcast, it's The Parisian Contract by M.F. Kelleher. Read by the author. Episode 16. Olivia hails a cab, which turns towards the sun and heads for the south of the city. She asks to be dropped off on a street corner at the eastern end of Rue de Guerre, so she can get an idea of the area before looking for the house circled on the map. She walks for five minutes. The sun has started to get hot as midday approaches. Olivia stops to take off her cardigan and stuff it into her bag. An old woman watches from her daily place on the doorstep. Olivia is aware of her watching eyes, but doesn't want to look directly at her for fear of adding to the daily narrative running in the old woman's mind. She imagines the woman later talking to other similar women about the details of the comings and goings of the street that is the backdrop of their lives. Olivia would feature in today's story a bit-part player who appears and holds the spotlight for a few minutes, then leaves without the audience knowing her true significance. Olivia enjoys her anonymity. As a girl, she had wanted to be the centre of attention, and her outgoing nature had made that possible. Whenever people ask her nowadays why she no longer likes attention, she says, Life got in the way. A cliché to hide painful details. But that is the purpose of clichés, she realises. She interrogates her phone to find the picture of the hand-drawn street map of Rudigert. She walks awkwardly along the length of the road, part looking at her screen and part looking up to get her bearings. There is no house where the ring is centred on the map. She re-walks her route, this time being more careful on details. There's a slight bend in the road on the map, and she places that curve on the street in real life to match the paper and the roadway. There are six large houses on the curve, each set back with long front gardens that spread from the pavement edge to the large windows that run along the front of the identical buildings. All look well cared for as they sit idly simmering in the August sun. She retraces her steps to the start of the side road that leads north along the last of the houses. This is the only place where she can get any sort of different perspective. A high wall runs down the side of the last property, then it's replaced by a wire fence along the roadside, and the wall continues at right angles, cutting off the end of the gardens from the land beyond. She jumps the wires and walks a well-worn path at the back of the wall. She walks the length of one garden, but the wall has no breaks. At the start of the second garden, the wall has been repaired, and Olivia stands on discarded stones from the rebuild. She can see the back of one of the houses, a tended lawn giving onto a rougher play area near to her. The house has large rear windows and two sets of French doors, all of which are open to let the air circulate. There is no one visible in the garden, and Olivia starts to think 
that this is not the place on the map. The sun is hot on Olivia's face. She moves on to the final house on the north side. There is no gap to see anything there either, and she walks back to the side road. The three houses on the south side of Rudigert are identical to those opposite, but there is no access road to reach the rear of the properties. Olivia walks back, past the watching woman, and cuts south along a narrow path that disappears into the woodland at the side of the road. The path goes due south, and Olivia cuts across into the undergrowth, and skirts around to where she thinks the houses must be, before tracking back north towards her targets. The trees get denser as she walks, and eventually she is pushing through branches and stepping over fallen bracken beneath her feet. She can see the roofs of the houses fifty yards away now, and makes the final plunge into the greenery, before coming out into the open, right up against the back wall. It is seven feet tall at this section, and she walks east to see if there are any gaps in the structure to get any sort of insight into life within the properties or their gardens. She reaches the far end of the wall without any joy. She walks back and arrives at the final house. The wall there, too, has had some repairs, which provide a big enough gap for her to see something. She watches for five minutes, but there is nothing of consequence moving. The place is identical to the house she saw on the other side of the road. If Camille is in one of these houses, Olivia will need a plan to get closer in. She can't think immediately how that could be possible without police presence and, given Jean-Luc's dislike of their involvement, she needs an alternative. Her summer dress flutters in the disturbed air. It is green and tan, matching the trees behind her and the soil beneath her feet. She is getting hungry, as she only had croissant while overlooking the Malneath house this morning. She makes her way back to the road and calls a taxi on her phone app. The app says ten minutes before the car arrives, so she walks along the road and past the old woman again. Her taxi pulls up exactly on time. She gets in, frustrated that she hasn't managed to find any more information that will help find Camille. The car pulls away and approaches a narrow part of the roadway. Another car is driving fast towards them, and her driver is forced to pull over, much to his displeasure. The other vehicle speeds towards them through the narrow section and within inches of their wing mirror. Her driver leans out and shouts at the other car. The vehicle is another taxi. As it squeezes past, Olivia looks across at the fracas and the passing vehicle. Behind the driver, sitting looking at a file of papers, is Constance Marchand. The evening light cuts yellow across the grey steel kitchen, bringing life to the starkness of the place. Three blue square frames of modern art hang along the eastern side, and a huge vase of pink peonies dominates the centre window that overlooks the garden. Sophie pours out another glass of Saint-Emilion and raises it to her mouth, creating wetness on her lips that matches the tears on her lashes. 
She leans against the work surface and realises that she feels more tired now than she has ever felt. She thinks about her life. She is proud of her achievements and would never have dreamed that Les Fleurs de Camille would be so successful. When she started, it was a single shop in Rue Coquillière, in one of the beautiful squares that sit north of the Louvre. Her first day had been nerve-wracking. No one had come to the shop for two hours. Her first customer had been a young man looking for a bouquet for his almost girlfriend. He told her about the girl and how he hoped it would all work out. She knew from that moment that flowers are a medium of communication, not just beautiful ornaments for imperfect lives. The raw silence is broken by the trivial sound of Jean-Luc's key in the door, and her body stiffens without her planning it. He puts his case on the side table, gets a newspaper out of it, walks into the kitchen and kisses her on the cheek. She is motionless. Here, darling, he says quietly. He gets a glass from the cupboard and pours himself wine from the bottle by her hand. Good day? He doesn't wait for an answer and sits on one of the two pale, identical sofas that stand to one side of the room. He starts to read his paper. She says nothing. After finishing the first news story, he looks up at her. Self? All right? She turns her eyes to his. When were you going to tell me? She says in a low monotone. Tell you what? I'll give you one last chance to say something, Jean. Sorry, what are you talking about? He says. No final declaration, then? Her voice wavers. Jean-Luc gets up and walks to her. So, come on, he says. As he approaches her, she throws the contents of her wine glass in his face. He coughs and puts his hand up to wipe away the liquid. What's happened? he says calmly. For once in your life, Jean, just be honest, she says. Did you think I wouldn't find your cosy emails to criminals who've kidnapped our daughter? I thought you wouldn't tell me about your criminal life, did you? I was protecting you, he says, holding his hands out. That's crap, Jean. It's true. I'm sorting it out. She'd be back soon. All these days and nights I've been going crazy worrying about Cammy, and you knew all along where she was. I don't know where she is, he says quietly. Why don't you ask your crime buddy, Jean, who seemed to have spirited her away? Jean-Luc puts up his hands and reaches out to Sophie. It will all be over very soon, he says. She bats his hands away. Get off me. Look, I have done a deal, he says. Today, this morning. To do what? To get Cammy back and end all of this forever. Why are they doing it anyway? says Sophie. Did you work for them once? I saw your emails and that Mercier man said you worked for him? A long time ago, says Jean-Luc uncomfortably. Since we've been married? No, before. You were a criminal before we were married? 
she is nearly shouting. Nothing major. Just pills. What? She looks disgusted. Pills in clubs, he says. I was twenty-one. What were you thinking, Jean? I needed the money for my postgrad. What, so you thought, I know, let's not get a job in a cafe, let's become a criminal instead, that will do my career no end of good. It wasn't like that, he says. What was it like? Her tone hardens. Not really illegal, I suppose you thought, just sort of against the law, and no one will notice. I am trying to get us out of this, he says, getting angry. Hang on, hang on, we are not in this at all. You are in this up to your neck by the sound of it. I want nothing to do with it. Just get our daughter back. Then you can leave. Soph, don't look. Calm down, he says. He grabs one of her wrists. She pulls her other arm back and smashes the glass down on his head. Get out, she screams. Bloody get out. The wine and the blood from the cut on his head mix and drip red onto the hard grey floor. Olivia carefully chooses what to wear. She dresses slowly, her mind preoccupied with thoughts and ideas and too much information. She walks down the staircase of the Hotel Pont Royal and across the ornate reception area into the bar that is set to one side of the ground floor plan. Some rain remains on the windows that overlook the street. The bar is almost empty. Three or four people are dotted across random tables, talking in hushed tones. She checks her watch, which says 6.30. She orders a daiquiri from a new barman. The boy who slept with Poppy seems to not work at the hotel anymore. Maybe he has gone to London to find her daughter and declare his love. Half of her would like that, and half of her is shocked at the idea. She sits for a change without looking at any screen or reading any papers. Olivia feels as though the last week has been so full of new news every day that she is struggling to understand all the facts, let alone the nuances. It is easier when she represents clients in court in America, as at least all the information is presented to her in big ring binders on day one. All the facts in one place, all written down. Her only role then is to read it all, decide which facts to talk about in court, and present a heartfelt, compassionate speech to the judge the next day. She is good at that, and she knows it. Chris is ten minutes late. She looks up, and he is in the doorway. Still dirty, still with one shoe kept on with string, and now he is bedraggled too from the end of the rain that has just fallen. He walks nervously across the floor to her. Drink, she says. Yeah. She raises her hand, and a waiter takes the order. How are you? she says coolly. Tired, says her brother. You got the cash. Let's have a drink first, she says. The waiter brings Chris a beer, and he gulps down nearly all of it. 
Olivia watches him drink, her heart beating out a sorrowful rhythm. Where are you going to go? she asks. Not sure. Any changes of heart? If you mean giving myself up, then no, of course not. What do you think's going to happen, Chris? What do you mean? What sort of life are you going to have? Same as before, you know. I can get a gig, DJing in clubs in the Far East. She takes a sip of her drink. What happened, Christopher? What happened to that young man with his dreams? I'm living those dreams, Ollie. Everything's going to work out. That's rubbish, and you know it. Why not, though? He says. Because even though you have lived on the border of illegal for years, this is different. But lawyers can get anyone off nowadays, can't they? He says. No. That's what you do for a living, Ollie, isn't it? Let the criminals get away with it. Of course not, she spits. Then why have lawyers at all if they can't get you off? To find out the truth, Chris. To ensure that justice is done, that the victims are seen to be treated fairly according to the law. You don't believe that, surely, he sneers. This is my whole life, Christopher. Of course I believe it. Without that, I'm nothing. What suddenly made you Miss Goody Two-Shoes, Ollie? You used to be a laugh. Maybe the day comes when the laughter has to stop, Chris. When we look at ourselves and think about our lives. I'm never going to do that, Ollie. I fully intend to party for the rest of my life. Her gaze moves up to the face of Captain Forol, who is standing behind her brother. Her sad eyes blink, and she nods almost imperceptibly to him. Forol moves with speed and puts one handcuff on Christopher. What the fuck? says her brother. Monsieur Street, I am Captain Forot of the Police Nationale. I am arresting you under a European arrest warrant issued by the Policia Nationale in Madrid. Ollie! he shouts. Help me! He looks frantically at his sister. Forot's men handcuff his other hand and start to lead him away. Olivia, for God's sake! Chris shouts. What have you done? She has cut herself off from the events in front of her. She can't look at him or Thoreau. She feels her jaw shaking as the tears drop down her cheeks and onto her blouse. <laughs>